from Washington. This is Talking Tax. I'm Amanda Icone. This week, we're talking about donor-advised funds. The National Philanthropic Trust calls them the most popular method for charitable giving, with nearly a half million accounts holding $110 billion in assets. I'm joined today by Bloomberg tax reporter Aisha Bakshi, who spoke with Ohio State University professor Brian Mittendorf about these funds and their tax implications. Aisha, quickly, what are these donor-advised funds? A donor-advised fund is kind of like a bank account that a charity creates. They can offer donors a way to give a variety of gifts, like art or stock, which can then be turned into cash and handed over to charities. And they can also benefit the donor by offering a significant tax deduction. That tax deduction factors into a lawsuit involving a wealthy family who gave $100 million in stock to a donor-advised fund run by Fidelity Charitable. So that lawsuit was technically a breach of contract suit. What can it tell us about this method of charitable giving and its tax implications? Well, experts think the case could offer a window into how funds like Fidelity Charitable operate. And it also highlights a giving option for taxpayers to more easily exceed the standard deduction or potentially reduce their capital gains taxes. Brian Mittendorf studies the accounting practices of nonprofits. He spoke with me about donor-advised funds. Thank you, Brian, so much for joining us today on the show. We're really happy to have you here. Sure, thank you. I wanted to start by asking if you can explain what these donor-advised funds are and how they fit into the charitable sector. So I think the best way to think about a donor-advised fund is like a miniature private foundation. And so I guess to get a sense of where that is in context, uh, charitable organizations in the U.S. are split into two categories, either private foundations or public charities. And private foundations are those typically funded by a small group uh, of individuals or family members and often are controlled by that same group. And public charities are the, the other category are funded by the public in general um, and, and as a result controlled by a, a different group than their donors and subject to less regulation. And I say they're like donor-advised funds are like miniature private foundations in that they're they're actually held in public charities. They're treated like public charities, but they're funds held within a public charity that are segregated by donors. And the donor serves as, a, as an advisor to those funds. So it's like a segregated account within a public charity that the donor continue to retain, continues to retain some control over. Mm-hmm. And there are special things about how the time horizon on donor-advised funds uh, works. Can you tell us a little about that? So because donor-advised funds are part of public charities, they don't face the same regulation that uh, private foundations do. Uh, so private foundations are given uh, restrictions on how much they have to pay out every year. So they can't just hold all their assets all the time. They have to pay out a certain amount each year. But donor-advised funds being part of public charities don't face those restrictions. So theoretically, money could sit in a donor-advised fund uh, indefinitely. I understand there are some special tax benefits to these donor-advised funds, at least in some cases. Can you explain what that looks like? Sure. Being part of public charities instead of part of private foundations, donor-advised funds not only face less uh, restrictions on what they can do, they also have some added tax benefits. Uh, The most notable would be that donors can give uh, assets that have gone up in value and get a tax deduction for their full market value. Uh, without ever having to recognize a capital gain uh, in the process. And uh, 
that applies to a wide variety of assets if those are given to donor-advised funds. It includes things like donations of limited partnership interests or art, a variety of different things. So that means that the assets being donated to the donor-advised fund have the value um, that includes the appreciation of something like stock, but that when it's accounted for in uh, income tax returns, um, that appreciation does, isn't, doesn't get included in, uh, in what the person has to pay taxes on. Is that right? Correct. So it's, it's, from the donor standpoint, it's like the best of both worlds. You can get a tax deduction for the full value of the thing you donated without ever having to recognize that it went up in value for tax purposes. So especially if people have ownership in stock, let's say, that they didn't pay much for and it got way up in value over the years, they can get a benefit for the value of it without ever having to recognize that it had gone up in value for tax reasons. There's no one-size-fits-all shape to these funds, I think. Can you tell us how they can look? Sure. So donor-advised funds... it can be held in public charities, and I think the distinguishing feature would be within different public charities, uh, there's different types of organizations that hold them, uh, which we would call sponsoring organizations. So I think I like to think of them as being in one of three categories. There's sponsoring organizations that hold donor-advised funds, their unifying feature being a particular mission. Uh, colleges and universities have them, different religious organizations hold them, and so on. Uh, The second category would be those that are community foundation-held. So community foundations essentially will bring together resources for the benefit of a community, and so that's kind of the unifying feature. Uh, The third group, which is the fastest-growing group, which is probably also the source of the most controversy, is roughly called commercial donor-advised funds, and their unifying feature is that they're affiliated, at least roughly, with commercial entities typically investment management companies. And so Fidelity Charitable is the largest donor-advised fund sponsor. And uh, there's others, though, Schwab Charitable and Vanguard uh, and and so on. And uh, there's this lawsuit happening right now uh, with Emily and Malcolm Fairbairn in Fidelity Charitable, which you mentioned. It's uh, technically a contract dispute. So, yes, the, the, the lawsuit here entails donors who made a gift uh, and the gift went through Fidelity Charitable, so into a, a donor-advised fund within Fidelity Charitable. And, and the gift in particular was of ownership of a firm that they had, Energis. So they donated about 10% of the firm's value, and this was at the end of 2017. And the lawsuit all kind of revolves around the fact that, uh, technically speaking, if I make a gift to a donor-advised fund, I've given the money over to that public charity that sponsors the fund, and it's theirs to do with it essentially what they wish. Um, but in this case, the the donors are alleging that, that Fidelity had made promises to them that they wouldn't sell those assets, at least they wouldn't sell them quickly. And so the the lawsuit all revolves around around that issue the the assets were donated at the very end of 2017 and fidelity sold them off very quickly and that matters to the donors because t- uh, ten, selling off 10% of ownership uh, of a particular company can cause a lot of downward pressure on the price and so that in fact is what happened the price went down uh, to the tune of 30% and so they felt that the quick sell off by fidelity was an irresponsible move and they thought that that actually affected their taxes as well as their donation. Can you explain to us how that might have worked out? 
Sure. So because the gift uh, was of an appreciated asset, they can get a tax deduction that's tied to the value of that asset when they gave it. Well, if that asset was sold the exact same day after they gave it, and the selling itself led the prices to go down, the value of that asset went down from the eyes of the tax deduction, too. And so that's that's part of the concern. Not the entire concern that they expressed, but that's a big part of it. People are thinking that this lawsuit might reveal something broader about how donor-advised funds operate. Uh, do you think the lawsuit can shed any light on what's going on in this field? I think it has that potential. And, and part of the reason why is because charities in general do have to provide a lot of information to the public uh, via their Form 990 and, and other filings. Uh, but those are things that are all done at the aggregate level. And so we can get information about Fidelity Charitable as a whole, but we don't get much information about individual funds within Fidelity Charitable. And so this lawsuit provides us a window into seeing that. I mean, I think the other thing that it gives us a window into seeing is how Fidelity Charitable operates. And so a lot of people wonder when they see the name Fidelity Charitable, they think, is it more Fidelity or is it more charitable? And, you know, this lawsuit can give us a glimpse into that. You know, what is their emphasis and what's their focus? Mm -hmm. I've heard you talk before about this idea of whether uh, donations to charity are focused on the mission or focused on tax benefits, focused on something having to do with the relation to the fund that you're donating to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, in many ways, I mean, if you step back and look at these commercial donor-advised funds, what is the the strengths or the value that they bring to the table. In many cases, it's that they can handle a lot of different types of assets. And so a lot of their sales pitch is presumably that they can convince donors to donate irregular assets or assets that have gone up in value, and they say they can handle them. And so uh, that is, in fact, sort of what we've seen with these commercial donor-advised funds. So Fidelity and others will talk about the fact that more than half the assets they receive are not cash. They're, they are actively seeking out non-cash gifts. And the reason for that would really be, one, they can handle things that are not cash, and two, it's in the donor's best interest to donate things that have gone up in value. Yeah, in this case, Fidelity actually approached the Fairbairns asking if they had any bitcoins for it first. That's what I remember. Yes, and I thought, you know, to your previous point, this is an important thing to note, that we are getting a glimpse into how the organization operates from a lawsuit like this, because uh, Fidelity, uh, according to the lawsuit at least, Fidelity approached these uh, donors and said, hey, do you happen to have any Bitcoin that you'd be interested in donating? Uh, for those who aren't following Bitcoin all the time, Bitcoin went up uh, drastically at the end of 2017. So its value had gone up a lot. And if you donate something at the end of the year that had gone up a lot in value, you get a really large tax deduction. And so they were pretty actively pursuing these appreciated assets, it appears. Uh Brian, in this case, J.P. Morgan and Fidelity were actually competing over uh, trying to get the Fairbairns to give money to a donor-advised fund. Can you explain why uh, these investment companies and the uh, charitable arms attached to them would be interested in getting these donations? Sure. So I think there's there's two sides to this, and the relative importance of those two sides is, is unclear, but one side... Uh, let's think of the charitable side, is that these organizations are really good at accepting a lot of different assets and converting them to cash and putting them to use for charitable purposes. And so these organizations bring that skill to the table. Uh, the, the other side of it is that they are at least loosely affiliated with investment management companies. So the concern is that they can 
receive gifts, uh, convert those gifts to cash, and then put them in investment funds affiliated with their organization and generate fees for those organizations. And so the ultimate question is how much pressure is them to is on them to have assets under management to generate fees for their affiliated organizations. Mm-hmm. And is there uh, any pressure on them to also be dispersing the money to charitable ends? So the pressure for them to distribute to charitable ends is not coming from a regulatory body. That part we know. And so the question is, where does that pressure come from? Uh, one form of pressure can certainly be from donors. Donors might say, I put this money in, I took a tax deduction, I want that money to be distributed. And so that's one source of pressure. Uh, we don't know the extent to which there's internal pressure. That is that the organization themselves uh, insists on money going out quickly. They are reluctant to be regulated that way, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're reluctant to do it, uh, to distribute funds. Uh, and in fact, I think this is part of the conundrum we have with these organizations is that there's the lack of requirements for them to distribute money creates potential for concerns. But at the same time, empirically speaking, they pay out on average about 20% of their assets each year. And so some would say that's not a particularly large concern because they pay out on average pretty well. Uh, what we don't have a feel for is does that average translate into some funds aren't paying out much at all and some are paying out a lot. And 20% is way above the 5% minimum that private foundations have to pay out, right? It is. And so this would be the argument that that proponents of donor-advised funds would say the, the more you relate, regulate them, the more they're going to act like private foundations. And on average, they're paying out much faster than private foundations, so let them be. Uh, at the same time, uh, there's estimates that say one in every five donor-advised funds doesn't pay out anything in a given year. And so people would say, well, regulations aren't about the averages. They're about these extreme behaviors. And so we might want to force people to pay out and not just sit on funds. But that is the question. And part of the issue is that we only have data at the aggregate level. We don't know much about individual funds. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Fairbairns wanted to help fight Lyme disease which has affected their family and many others. But there's a debate about the trade-offs when it comes to tax deductions and charitable giving. Can you tell us about that and how donor-advised funds fit in? Yeah, so this case comes with a backdrop of a much larger question that's being asked recently about the value of charitable organizations in the country. Uh, And so typically people would think of the more money that goes into charity, the better. Uh, But at the same time, every dollar that goes into charity is uh, taking something away from money that would go into the government through taxes. And so the question is, uh, is that trade-off the trade-off we want to have, particularly in organizations like these for which the money may go into the charity and it may be some time before it goes out of the charity to be used to meet more urgent needs, health needs, uh, homelessness, poverty, education, which some people would say we want the money to be used now. Do you expect policymakers to get more involved in regulating this area? I mean, on the one hand, I would say yes, because it's a, it's a clear area where there's a gap in regulation. So you have this opportunity to donate uh, assets, get a huge tax deduction for them, never have to claim as income those things that went up in value, and never be required to actually distribute them anywhere. Uh, so there's a gap there. Something could be done. 
uh, but at the same time, there's not a natural advocacy group to make it happen. And so you ask, who are the people who are going to really push for a regulatory change? And it's hard. I'd be hard-pressed to come up with that group that's going to have the influence to make that happen. And so obviously, donor-advised funds work really well for donors. Uh, donor-advised funds uh, work really well for the organizations affiliated with them. Uh, I'd say the organizations that are losing out are the organizations who are operating charities who need the money today, and the money's not getting to them. But these organizations are very reluctant to bite the hand that feeds them, that being the donor-advised funds. Uh, so I, I don't see a natural group that's coming forward to say this has to happen now. And do you expect donor-advised funds to grow? The 2017 tax law actually uh, created some incentives to give to them. Is that right? I believe so. So on, on the one hand, they've been growing so fast that it's hard to envision they could keep up that pace. But there's added incentives. And so the, the, the recent tax law, the reason why I would say there's added incentives in the recent tax law is because of the larger standard deduction that creates an environment in which if you're going to make large gifts, you want to bunch them all in one year to get a, get above that standard deduction number. And so this notion of bunching of charitable gifts for tax reasons is, is a real one. And donor-advised funds are well-suited to implement that. You can don't you can bunch all your gifts in one year, and then you can have them distributed out even later in the future. And so they serve that intermediary role, which could which could permit you to take advantage of the, the tax law as it is. And so I don't see any new things in the tax law which take away from donor advised funds, but I do see this added benefit that comes from it. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, we really appreciate your coming on the show to explain these things to us. Great, thank you. And now, this week's top news. Tax professionals are warning their Connecticut clients that they could end up paying more to Uncle Sam if the IRS nixes a program aimed at easing the pain of a cap on state and local tax deductions. The IRS has already killed one workaround intended to soften the $10,000 cap through charitable fund contributions. Connecticut's pass-through entity workaround is still viable for now, but agency officials have suggested that they aren't done issuing guidance. Microsoft was among the first public companies to include an extended audit report in its annual financial statement. The new disclosure, however, might not offer many new insights for investors. Microsoft's annual report listed two critical audit matters for revenue recognition and income taxes. Those two are likely to be the most commonly cited CAMs for public companies. The new extended audit report gives a glimpse into the conversation between auditors and audit committees and lets investors know which portions of the financials may be less certain. That's it for this week's edition of Talking Tax. Kelly Zegers served as contributing producer on this week's episode. From Washington, I'm Amanda Icone. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. One of the oh, come on. Words. You know, come on. Well, I agree Be with serious. You. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh... <laughs> oh, I interesting, know that. Right? That is See? interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Ha, 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 ha.